entering the Freedom Hut. The country mourns after two horrific mass shootings. We'll discuss what the possible actions to take might be and also the hyper-politicization of these tragedies by the Democrats. We'll be joined by our friends Charles Cook from National Review and John Lott from More Guns, Less Crime. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hate has no place in our country. We're doing a lot of work. A lot of people are working right now. A lot of law enforcement people and others. Spoke to members of Congress about whatever we can do. And a lot of a lot of things are being done right now as we speak. This, this is mental illness. These are pe- really people that are very, very seriously mentally ill. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I know it was a difficult weekend for the country. And as we go into Monday today, we all were aware of what the conversation would be like. Uh, You have a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas. A uh, white nationalist, white supremacist went in, killed uh, people as fast as he could uh, using a semi-automatic rifle. And then you have a similar incident in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, So the country is in a particular state of panic right now, although in Dayton, Ohio, the shooters believed to be a a politically an Elizabeth Warren supporter, a leftist, a Satanist, from what I understand, although they're still looking into it. I don't believe he has the same kind of manifesto that was left behind by the El Paso shooter. Uh, We have been through these discussions. You and I have here on this show many times before. There have been mass shootings like this. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, more more than we should be able to name. Unfortunately, we can because there's been so many of them in recent years. Sandy Hook, among the most horrific of all these shootings. And we have these conversations afterwards about what can be done. And there is an impulse, an impulse that everyone feels that we would want to stop the next one. How do you prevent this from ever happening again? It's such an unspeakably evil Uh, destructive, hateful thing for anyone to go into an area and just try to take as much innocent life as possible based on a combination of a hateful ideology, a mental illness, a deep uh, emptiness, a a black hole in place of a soul. Uh, No one really has particularly satisfying answers about why anybody would do this. You know, you can have psychologists come on air. You can have psychiatrists try and analyze it. No one really understands where evil comes from. Um, We talk about the ways you could try to prevent this, and we'll discuss some of them here on the show. What are they? Uh, Well, first, you identify the, the cause. That's the first step. What caused this shooter in El Paso? What caused this shooter in Dayton, Ohio? And let's not forget about the shootings, including two mass shootings in Chicago more likely aligned with gang violence than anything else that killed half a dozen people and wounded dozens more on top of the, uh, the dozens who were uh, killed and wounded in El Paso and Dayton. 
What causes these incidents? Well, the causes are not the same if you're looking at the individuals. But people will say that there's a combination of uh, trauma early on, some violence or sexual abuse or something that uh, affected the shooter early on in life. And then you have the usual loner profile, somebody who had red flags and it's specific to the individual whether they're open about it or they try to hide it. But the more you find out about these young disaffected males that engage in mass shootings, the more there's a lot that we say, ah, of course, that's what we would have expected here. And then we turn to, well, how do we stop it the next time? How could we catch it so that we wouldn't have uh, people losing family members and uh, lives shattered families never to be the same? And you say, well, there must be something. And you go down this list, right? You say, well, maybe we can stop people from accessing video games. I see the president even mentioned this today. That, that's getting a lot of attention. Right? Maybe we could do more to monitor social media. To that I say, well, there's video games all over the world. People play first-person shooters here just like they do in countries all over the globe, countries that have much less uh, in, in the way of mass shootings than we do. I have played more than my share of uh, first-person shooter video games, and I've never once even had a thought in the back of my mind that this was making me a more violent person. Um, so, But video games get some attention. Then you move to the next, okay, well, what about mental health? Ah, yes, mental health. The thing about mental health is that it is really just health. And the moment you're talking about someone's health and well-being and, and stability you are tackling a whole range of interrelated and connected issues. There's tremendous complexity and mental health in some ways, perhaps is the most complicated area of health of all. We know very little about brain function. We know very little about mapping uh, the regions of the brain to determine propensities for violence and, and evil in any ways to try and use science to give us answers. So that then runs into, okay, well, what about restricting people from access to guns based upon a mental health profile and you say all right well does that mean that our veterans who are are getting through and getting over ptsd are are, are they restricted in their second amendment rights or anyone for that matter who has ptsd from a traumatic incident do they no longer have the right what about somebody who's been attacked and has ptsd from that and has to seek therapy are they now told you're no longer able to defend yourself so there are problems that come up there now just to say that there are problems is not another way of saying that we won't do anything, but if we're going to do something, we should understand the pluses and the minuses, and we should not have it uh, set in our minds that we just do something to do something. I mean, that's, that's counterproductive. Uh, that's not, that is not helpful. We should be focused on making things better, not just taking action for the sake of action. Uh, and then we get to gun control, the favorite topic of the left, in general, although right now the favorite cause of this, according to leftists, is Donald Trump himself, which we'll get to that later on in the show, which is completely unfair, but very predictable. Uh, gun control. All right. Gun control. How? To what extent? Where? 350 million estimated guns in, in circulation right now. Maybe it's closer to four or five hundred million at this point. You're going to have a buyback program and take them all away. You're never going to get them all. There's also a constitutionally protected right to a gun. The moment that you try to do these things, you realize it's a lot harder to take actions that will have a positive effect than it is to take actions that will be either an infringement on a right 
or will have no impact whatsoever um, or a combination thereof. It's much easier to look at this from the perspective of the left because they tell themselves that we don't have a lot of gun control. We don't have a lot of laws running the books. That's, un- that's just not true. There are all kinds of laws to prevent certain people from getting guns, the transport of guns across state lines, the kinds of guns you can already own. There are restrictions. So now they talk about upping the restrictions and we get into a debate over, well, would that have done anything to stop either of these shooters? No. Well, so then why is the lesson we take from an incident to do something that wouldn't have stopped the thing that is the spark of the entire conversation and the movement itself to do something? They don't really have answers. I'll tell you this. Everybody wants to believe something else is the case after one of these mass shooting incidents. It is very unlikely that anything here will change. If you really want to seek a way to stop these shootings, it's a whole society top to bottom effort to give young men a greater sense of purpose to instill honor and dignity in young men across the country at a young age to promote intact families, to promote fatherhood, to promote uh, parents who are involved and supportive of their children. I mean, this is but these aren't laws that you can pass. This is a social issue. This is a societal issue. This is how we treat each other every day. It's how parents interact with their own families. It's how siblings interact with each other, how people treat each other in school. It's anti-bullying. It's uh, showing decency. It's the day-to-day how you interact with your fellow human beings. That all has an effect here, too. But there's no law you can pass that will change any of that. Uh, There's no law that any of us can point to that will make young men who are deeply frustrated and alone that feel closed off from the rest of society that'll make them feel like they have hope that they have peers they have purpose something that all human beings require and if they don't get it that in a way that is positive they will institute a replacement for it that as we see can be from the darkest recesses of the soul nothing here is really going to change when it comes to the laws If anything, there'll be some state-level cosmetic shifts in what you can buy for firearms. It's not going to change. And the people that are running around telling you otherwise are either misleading or don't know what they're talking about. We already have the laws that we need to have. We already have the regulations that we should have in place that balance out the right to access a firearm with the right to try and protect society at large. Criminals and people who are willing to murder large numbers of their fellow human beings don't really care very much about additional regulations put on magazine capacity or the cosmetics of a rail system on a firearm or name some aspect of the gun control debate that will now get a tremendous amount of focus. Is it an assault rifle or is it a handgun? Both can kill very, very easily and in large numbers, as we have seen countless times in the past. Is it a semi-automatic rifle? Is it a semi-automatic shotgun? What, what, are, what is the weapon of choice that the bad guys are using? The point is they want to use a weapon to harm innocents. One other note here, the first responders and law enforcement involved in both of these incidents were a reminder of the best of, of what we are. 
Police in Dayton, Ohio, responded within 30 seconds to take out that shooter before he could have killed even more. Within 30 seconds, they engaged the target and they took out the threat. We live in a very complicated country, my friends. There's a 330 some odd million of us at this point. And in a population that size, there are going to be people that are remarkably and unalterably evil. That's just the reality that we face. Balancing out the rights of the state to try and save us all and give us perfect security with our rights as individuals to defend ourselves and defend our our liberty. That is a goal that we all have to keep in mind. So I don't speak from a, a cynical perspective on this. I just speak from the experience of going through this debate over and over again and seeing what really appears to be the primary desire of those who are the loudest in this discussion to bash the other, to make this about Trump and about white nationalism that they say Trump supports and about how all of his supporters therefore also support white nationalism. They turned this issue of violence from a few individuals in the most partisan way. They shift this into a one-sided narrative and, and they use it as a club to bash the other. That's bad faith. That's not helping anyone. That's not making any of us safer. It's not dealing with the problem. And the absolute opportunism of the Democratic candidates right now bashing the president of the United States on this after the speech he gave this morning, which no sane, honest observer would say is anything other than exactly what the president should have said under the circumstances. I mean, there's so much bad faith that that there was a mistake, it seems, in the prompter with one of the cities where this occurred, and that was trending on Twitter. Oh, the president made a mistake in his remarks. See, he must be a white nationalist. These people are deranged in their own way. We're talking about mental health issues. You're seeing a lot of individuals who think of themselves as well-adjusted, but they really believe that the president of the United States might as well be a member of the KKK or is a neo-Nazi himself or supports them. This is hogwash. This is crap. It's a lie. Well, that's not stopping the Democrats. Not right now. We will talk more about the shifting of blame to Trump and why that's completely outrageous. The way the Democrats certainly didn't shift blame to say Bernie Sanders after a attempted mass assassination of members of Congress by a Bernie Sanders supporter. We'll talk about how they focus so much more on the shooting in El Paso than the one in Dayton, Ohio, despite them being very similar and very close to each other in time. And then we'll discuss whatever solutions there are out there. I'm all for preventing the next attack. I'm just not for pretending we're going to protect. Uh, we're going to prevent the next attack so that we can bash each other politically. I have to say the ugliest social media ever gets uh, with the possible exception of the Kavanaugh nomination is in the aftermath of these mass shootings. People completely lose themselves, lose their minds. And in a moment when decency and unity should be so prized by all of us, many Many people think that the virtue signaling of bashing the other and dehumanizing the other through rhetoric about how they support murderers and don't care about dead kids. That seems to be the order of the day for the left. It's it's really disheartening. We'll get into all this and more team coming up. Stay with me. I would just hope the president would uh, would begin to try to but would, would stop the divisive. Uh, racist rhetoric that he has employed increasingly 
he did it in the campaign in 16. Um, many thought that would be enough to keep him from winning, but more importantly, he does it even more now. And we've had two presidents, the two preceding presidents who dealt with terrible terrorism and mass shootings, uh, tried to heal, and this president doesn't. Uh, I don't, I mean, I know that white supremacists feel empowered with this president. I, I know that. Um, it's clear they feel empowered when he attacks people. That's Sherrod Brown saying more or less what the Democrat position is now, which is that the president needs to stop being divisive uh, because he's such a racist and empowers white supremacists so much. They, they don't see that the problem with this statement, um, they, they don't see that they, on the one hand, pretend that they're trying to make things better. But on the other hand, they're constantly just using incidents like this to score cheap political points. They'll do it in the same sentence, in the same breath. I was amazed at how many people over the weekend were saying, why won't, why isn't this treated as terrorism? Uh, it's being charged as terrorism. Everyone I know is calling it terrorism. And when you have a political manifesto that involves you saying you're going to engage in violence, uh, violence of any kind, but violence against civilians in order to change a national policy, yeah, that is terrorism. No question about it. Timothy McVeigh was a terrorist. I mean, you, you go down the list. This is not surprising. This is not hard. This is a myth that the left propagates that people won't say that white supremacist violence to change national policy isn't terrorism. Of course, it's terrorism. Nobody said Timothy McVeigh wasn't a domestic terrorist. Nobody would say that the shooter in El Paso isn't a domestic terrorist. So we say that and then they keep pretending we don't say it, just like they tell the president to denounce white supremacists. And he does. And they say, why doesn't he denounce white supremacists? It's almost like they don't really care what the president says. It's almost like this is really just an opportunity for them to try and bolster their own narrative and, and increase their own power when it should be a time for national unity and healing and solution seeking. Instead, it turns into leftist blame game with the media full of people who are ignorant about guns, foolish when it comes to the Second Amendment, showing themselves to be total clowns and, and just completely ignorant by their attacks on conservatives and on Donald Trump with all of this. So, you know, yeah, Donald Trump agrees with everybody else. White supremacists are terrible. All right. Everyone's denouncing them as they should. We've got more. You might describe a cockroach or termites as an infestation, something less than human. You might hear someone in the Third Reich describe uh, a given people based on their characteristic as an infestation or subhuman. But that's what the president of the United States is doing right now we have a president who made his career politically on demonizing mexicans and now we're seeing reports that the shooter yesterday had his goal as killing as many mexicans as possible all of the evidence out there uh, suggests that we have a president who is a racist who is a xenophobe uh, who appeals and is trying to appeal to white nationalism. He is not only egging on white supremacy and white nationalism, but he is one himself. I believe that the president is fostering, fostering hate in this country. Donald Trump is responsible for this. We have a president of the United States who uses the microphone, which is probably one of the most powerful tools in the hand of the president of the United States, and uses that microphone in a way that is about sowing hate and division in our country. Yep, they'll go out and say it now, folks. They're just saying the president of the United States is responsible. This is disgusting. It's wrong. It's untrue. It's unethical and it's reckless. 
But you have all these major Democrat presidential candidates, pretty much all of them except for Biden, who, as an aside, I'm starting to think maybe he is going to be the nominee just because the rest of the Democrats are such a bunch of losers. Maybe it is going to be Biden just because there's something about him that's somewhat normal-ish in comparison. But they're not just saying that Trump's rhetoric is bad or that Trump could do more to heal the country. They are straight up saying that he is responsible for this. This is shameful. This is disgraceful. And I will also remind you all that they have nothing, it seems, to say about the shooter in Ohio, who is an Elizabeth Warren supporter. And we don't know as much yet about the exact reasons for what he did. But he was apparently a Satanist, uh, left wing, anti anti Christian, Elizabeth Warren supporting, you know, a lot of. A lot of people try to get deep into the ideologies at work here. Keep in mind, we're talking about crazy people. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything or it doesn't necessarily uh, add up that, that what they're what they believe is is coherent or isn't isn't contradictory in important ways. So I, I would just note that I think that these are uh, circumstances where we should be bringing ourselves together as a country. We should be having honest conversations about about how we can heal how we can defend each other and one of my big frustrations is there's such a rush on the left to demonize gun owners in in circumstances like this and you know i was just at a range with my friend tony schaefer a few weeks ago and some 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 friends of mine and i can just tell you looking at everybody who was at the gun range on that day these are all lawful gun owners all there you know for sport or for home defense training or whatever it may be every single one of them I could assure you, if given the opportunity, would would want to return fire. And, and I'd be willing to bet that all of them would, would even put themselves in harm's way to defend helpless people in that Walmart in El Paso or in that in that bar area of Dayton, Ohio. I think every single one of them would. Lawful gun owners are patriots overwhelmingly. And yet there's this uh, desire to tie together mass shooters with all lawful gun owners in this country. And it's it's dishonest. It's unfair. It's it's really gross, but it keeps happening after these incidents. But the the effort to make this about the, to smear the president. I mean, the president's speech today, he was as clearly uh, denouncing of he, he denounced white supremacy in the most full throated terms possible. Has no place in this country. Hate has no place in this country. And people, and I'm not exaggerating, people who were complaining that Donald Trump, Ana Navarro, who, as I say, is, I think, the dumbest political analyst on television. Uh, just listen to her a bit and you'll you'll agree with me. She said she was, you know, the day before Trump's speech yesterday, she was saying that Donald Trump hasn't hasn't uh, denounced white supremacy. And then he denounces white supremacy. And then her response is, well, I don't give a I don't give a damn what he says. Oh, OK, well, which is it? This is what I always say. It's the same thing with Putin. You know, oh, he doesn't he doesn't do enough to tell us why Putin is you know, terrible. He doesn't do enough to hold Putin accountable for the Russian interference. When he does say something, then they say that it's insufficient. And if he doesn't say something, they say he's scared and he's in Putin's pocket. I mean, he can't win is the very basic reality here. But, you know, I I I remember I recall uh, the shooting that happened just a few miles from where I am right now. It's probably a 15-minute drive from where I'm doing this show. The baseball diamond in Alexandria, Virginia, 
where there was an attempted mass assassination of conservative members of Congress. I mean, it would have been one of the most horrific, bloody, and really, you know, history changing in all the worst ways events in our recent history. I mean, it would it, it could have very easily been the worst day for America since 9-11. I mean, if you had had whatever it was, a dozen members of Congress assassinated. I mean, I don't even remember how many were out there, but there was a whole slew of them. They're all uh, doing baseball practice or softball practice. Imagine if that shooter, if he had had the ability to just pin them down or just pick them off one by one. Oh, that's right. The shooter was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Remember that? Here's Rand. This was when Steve Scalise was shot. This is what Rand Paul, who was there, who was also attacked by a neighbor for his beliefs and, and viciously almost almost killed and, you know, brutally beaten. Uh, here's what what uh, Rand Paul had to say after that shooting that almost killed Steve Scalise. I mean, he almost bled out, almost died, had to go through terrible surgeries and rehab. Uh, and this was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Here's here's what that was like. Play eight. And I was there at the ball field when Stephen Scalise almost died uh, from a very, very angry, violent man who was incited really by rhetoric on the left. And this hasn't been reported enough. When he came onto the field with a semi-automatic weapon, firing probably close to 200 shots at us, shooting five people and almost killing Steve Scalise, he was yelling, this is for health care. He also had a list of conservative legislators, Republicans in his pocket that he was willing to kill. Mm -hmm. So what happens when, when Democrats say get up in their face, they need to realize that there are a lot of unstable people out there. There are people with anger issues. There are people that are prone to violence. They might even live next door to you. You don't know where these people are. But what we shouldn't do is incite people to violence. Yeah, incitement is one thing. Political beliefs that differ with you with other people is is entirely something else. And they're now trying to conflate it. They're trying to shut down political opposition that they don't like by pretending that to disagree with them on very difficult, complicated matters like health care, for example, is to be the same as someone who's a white nationalist or a fascist. Or you know, the, the left is full of very emotionally unstable people. There are emotionally unstable people on the right as well. But we had a leftist shooter and we had a right wing shooter. Notice how all the focus is on Trump and his rhetoric. What about left wing rhetoric? Why no conversation about that? Same reason why. After that, Bernie Sanders supporter tried to kill conservative members of Congress. He targeted them specifically, had a list. There was no talk of the the rhetoric coming from the left and whether they need to tone things down. No, not at all. One other thing here. It's a shame that I never had the opportunity in my CNN days to debate Reza Aslan on radical Islam because I, I understood his whole game was what's really Islam what's not really Islam the world is very big there's a lot of Muslims all over the world so radical Islam isn't even really from within the Islamic world it's it, it, it doesn't really mean anything because Islam means so many different things that was his and then the moment you try to drill down and say well hold on a second what about the pew polling what about attitudes he would say oh well have you been, you know when was the last time you're in Indonesia oh I'm sorry person who doesn't you know, who isn't a Muslim, who doesn't speak Arabic or doesn't speak whatever, uh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And then click, they go to commercial. That was always the game that Reza Aslan used to play with people on TV to essentially downplay the threat of radical Islam and make anybody that was concerned about it look like they were a racist, even though Islam is not a is not a race. It's a, a belief system. Uh, this guy had his own show on CNN, folks. And, and I was told once that they were going to set up a they were going to set up a debate between me and him after one of these major terrorist attacks 
committed by ISIS, and then they never did. Um, I'm sure because he thought he was too important, although he would have gotten smacked around just like others that had debated me on this issue. The guy who the guy who got fired for being an anti-Semite, you know, who because he said the river to the sea, I can't remember his name now. We debated radical Islam. He got smoked. I mean, you know, one after another, because I know the issue backwards and forwards. And I was a practitioner. These people are just, you know, wannabe academics. But Reza tweeted this out today. All right. This is a guy who had his own show at CNN. All right. CNN elevated him, treated him like he was an expert for years. After today, there's no longer any room for nuance. The president is a white nationalist terror leader. His supporters, all of them, are by definition white nationalist terror supporters. The MAGA hat is a KKK hood, and this evil racist scourge must be eradicated from society. The president is a white nationalist terror leader, and all of his supporters are, are, are therefore white nationalist terror supporters. This is not, he's not alone in thinking this at CNN, folks. I'm telling you, this, there's other, other progressive lib types there who think this way too. Uh, remember, this is somebody that they, for years, he was, he was their guy. For years, CNN elevated him. Oh, oh, Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper think that Reza Aslan is a much more uh, sound thinker, a much more serious person than, say, I am. Because Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper are hacks, and they're not particularly sound or interested thinkers at all. But he's just an example of it. Now we see who Reza Aslan really is. The guy's a psycho. This is not helpful. We just had two mass shootings. He's calling every, every you know, the tens of millions of people that voted for Donald Trump are all supporters of white nationalism and KKK supporters. It's disgusting. An intellectually indefensible and reckless thing to say. But there's a lot of that going on right now. It's uh, it really it really makes me mad. I, I, I wish the focus would be on what really could be done here because it's a very complicated problem. And we do have a problem. And I'll try to speak to you more about solutions here on this show. But I'm not going to let the left get away with the smears. You tweeted just a few minutes ago, quote, Mr. President, stop your racist, hateful and anti-immigrant rhetoric. Your language creates a climate which emboldens violent extremists. Could you elaborate on, on more uh, what you mean by that tweet? Look, I am sure that President Trump does not want anybody in this country to go around shooting other people. But what he has to understand in a nation where you have many, many thousands of people who are mentally unstable, that when you talk about invasions and hordes of people, and when you talk about Mexicans as criminals and rapists and the country under siege, you have unstable people who are going to see that as a sign that they have got to take up arms and do the horrific things that we just saw in El Paso. So I just want to know if Bernie Sanders there, if we're going to take what he said at face value, does he take responsibility for the shooter at the baseball field in Alexander we just talked about, who felt that the Republicans are evil and are trying to take health care away from people and don't care if poor people die in the streets from preventable disease or die slowly and painfully from cancer because they're a bunch of greedy fat cats. Does Bernie Sanders take responsibility? Because they say that stuff about Republicans all the time. Does he take responsibility for uh, that shooter? James, uh, I forget his last name now, the shooter at the baseball diamond in Alexandria. And maybe I shouldn't say his name at all. I think it was Hodgkinson. Um, do they take responsibility for that? No, of course not. He doesn't. Do, do they? Does the left take responsibility for Ocasio-Cortez? saying that we are operating concentration camps at our border, which if that if that were true, if we were operating concentration camps 
And in the Nazi model, which she specifically referenced with never, never again, right? So she meant Nazi concentration camps, Nazi-style concentration camps. If that were true, we would have a moral obligation to take up arms against the government and the people involved. We would have that. Of course, we don't have concentration camps, so that's insane. It's lunacy. But she says that, and then some Antifa guy out in Washington state tries to attack a facility, blow it up a couple weeks ago. Does AOC get the blame for that? You know, they, they have to establish a principle. They have to establish what the rules going to be here. They don't get to just change it as they see fit whenever there's an opportunity to put this at the feet of a Republican, which is what they or particularly at the feet of the president, which is what they want to do. Uh, I mean, you know, Beto, who's just desperate for some national recognition right now. And yes, I know he's from El Paso. So they're also going to him a lot because this is his this happened in, in his hometown. Uh, but he is straight up blaming Trump for this as though Trump ordered it as though it was Trump pulling the trigger himself. It's just insane what Beto O'Rourke is saying. Here, here's an example. Play five. Any of this fall at the feet of President Donald Trump and his uh, rhetoric that's been growing over the last couple of weeks and his uh, alleged racist tweets and other rhetoric? Yes. We've had a rise in hate crimes every single one of the last three years during an administration where you have a president who's called Mexicans rapists and criminals. Though Mexican immigrants commit crimes at a far lower rate than those born here in the country, he has tried to make us afraid of them. He is a racist, and he stokes racism in this country. And it does not just offend our sensibilities. It, it fundamentally changes the character of this country, and it leads to violence. Strong indications that um, this shooter uh, wrote that manifesto and that this was inspired by his hatred of people here in this community. Inspired by Trump's hatred of these people. That was a moron. Trump doesn't hate any of those people. Trump is not hateful toward the people of El Paso. It's just it's a it's a horrible thing to say. But they'll say anything about this president. I mean, there, there's a real emotional instability that he has exposed in his political opponents across the country. Trump derangement syndrome is very real. And even after incidents like these two mass shootings where you think we'd be able to come together, and say, OK, hold on a second. This is terrible. This is a horrific tragedy. There are too many of these happening. What can we do? What can we really do to stop the next one or make the next one less likely? We can't even have two days of that before it's this is Trump's fault. This is Trump's fault. They just come right out and say it. You know, there were there were a lot of things that happened uh, during the Obama years, including mass shootings that were never said to explicitly be the fault of the, of the president of the United States then. But these are, these are different times now. Anything that can damage Trump is considered ex- acceptable to say. Any degree of lunacy from the left, uh, they will defend. It's just, it, it's really disheartening. Because as long as that's going on, there's no good faith on their side. We will not have solutions to these mass shootings. That I can assure you of. But you also know that thoughts and prayers are, are not enough. And uh, I turn my attention to the person who is uh, leading this country, who is, in my opinion, in this moral moment, who is failing. And I think that at the end of the day, especially because this was a white supremacist manifesto, 
that I want to say with more moral clarity that Donald Trump is responsible for this. He's responsible because he is stoking uh, fears and hatred and bigotry. Well, Cory Booker's going right for it. He is saying the president is responsible for mass shootings, which is an overstatement by anyone's estimation. But Cory Booker's trying desperately to out lefty the other candidates in the Democratic primary right now. What is the truth of mass shootings right now by the numbers? Uh, Are there more of them? What can we do to stop them? Let's bring in an expert here who can help us address some of that. We've got John Lott with us now. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John, great to have you back on the show. Great to talk to you again, Buck. All right, John. So tell me, first off, are there more of these shootings than in the past? We keep hearing that this problem has gotten a lot worse. Mass shootings have gotten so much worse. That is what we hear by the numbers. What's the truth of that? Right. Well, in terms of the number of attacks, it's pretty much the same over the last 20 years or so. Uh, There's really been very little change in terms of the number of attacks. Uh, In terms of casualties, uh, 2017 was an unusually uh, bad year uh, in terms of these attacks. Uh, And that's had, that drives a lot of the increase that you see over time in terms of the number of casualties. Uh, But uh, except for that year, uh, there's really not a huge change, even in terms of the number of casualties. So, I mean, what, you have lots of years. You go back to 1999 was a bad year, for example. Uh, you know, 2007. There are other years much earlier that were also bad years. I guess people forget about some of the stuff and focus more on what's been happening now. But, um, uh, but anyway, that's the general pattern. And what about the overall trend in gun violence in this country? Because there's there's some attention that Chicago, which had its own series of shootings, uh, a number of people killed, dozens of people wounded over the weekend. Uh, has that been trending down or relatively level in recent years? Right. Well, um, murder rates in the United States kind of reached a peak in 1991, and they fell until you got through to the early 2000s, and then it was kind of leveling off. We had a little bit of an increase at the end of the Obama administration in 2015 and 2016. Uh, The murder rates went up from about uh, 4.5 per 100,000 in uh, 2014 to about 5.4 per 100,000 in 2016. And now under Trump, the last two years... uh, it's gone down. My guess is right now, uh, last year, it was probably down to something about 4.9 per 100,000. Now, one of the areas of your research that uh, you know is considered, well, I think of the most value, some people would say it's the more controversial part, is what to do about crime and how guns plays into this. Well, what can you tell us about mass shootings and, and mass shooting prevention? What are the serious proposals, or what, what are the things that could be done that aren't just rhetoric and aren't just political grandstanding? Right. Well, first of all, just before I kind of get into what I would propose, just talk a tiny bit about kind of the leading proposals that somebody like Cory Booker would put forward, for example. Sure. And and if you look at the Democrats, there's really two proposals that they all seem to agree on, Uh I'm sure there are other, but the two main ones have been background checks on the private transfers of guns, so-called universal background checks, 
and a ban on, on so-called assault weapons. The, the thing that I find irritating, I want to do something, but neither of these proposals, it's hard to believe that anybody would believe that they would matter. So I wish, for example, on these universal background checks, I wish reporters once in a while would go and ask them, okay, can you point to a mass public shooting, let's say, this century that would have been stopped if this law had been in effect? You know, assume it was perfectly enforced. Can you point to a case where it would have mattered? And they can't. There's not one mass public shooting this century that would have been stopped if this law had been in effect. Yet it's something under uh, when Obama was president or now, it's like the go-to uh, regulation that they bring up each well, and every well, time. Let me ask, so so that everyone listening has, has clarity on this, John, what would universal background checks mean versus what we already have? Because we have the Nick's background check system in, in place. And what is the, the truth of the so-called gun show loophole? Right. Well, the universal background checks, again, are just private transfers of guns. So if I were to go and sell you a gun, uh, or give you a gun, uh, and, you know, we're just friends. Uh, you know, depending upon the state right now, either we have to go to a gun dealer and have a background check done on it before I can give it to you, or we don't. So, you know, you're in Washington, D.C. Um, in order for me to give you a gun, we have to go to the licensed dealer there in D.C., and we'd have to pay $125 for each gun uh, that I would give you uh, for them to go and do the background check. If I were to give you four guns, I'd have to pay $500 in order to do it. You, you know, it's the thing is set up actually so that the background checks on each gun rather than on the person. I'm giving all the guns to you. You'd think it'd just be one background check, but uh, um, you know, it's. <sighs> You know, I wish there was something magical out there that could work to go and make sure criminals aren't going to be able to get a hold of guns. Uh, and uh, but you know, the problem is is that criminals have lots of sources for getting guns. Probably the most prominent one is just you know drug dealers. Drug dealers have guns simply because they have very valuable property, and it's not like they can go to the police and say this other gang stole our drugs. Can you help us get them back? They have to essentially set up their own little militaries in order to go and protect that property. Well, what most people hear all the time is you'll hear that, well, background checks have stopped 3.5 million dangerous or prohibited people from getting guns. And that's simply a lie. Uh, what they should say is that there have been uh, 3.5 million initial denials and that almost all of those are what we call false positives. They're mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from buying a gun. And when you, you fill out uh, the, what's called the 4473, when you buy a gun, you put down your name, your Social Security number, your birth date, your, you know, your race, your eye color, your address, you think they're using all that information. What they use is roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays. And the problem is, is that those 3.5 million mistakes, it's primarily minorities who are being denied the ability to go and buy a gun. Uh, 
people tend to have names similar to others in their racial groups. Hispanics have names similar to other Hispanics. Blacks have names similar to other blacks. Uh, 30% of black males in the United States are legally prohibited from owning a gun because of past criminal history. Well, who's Whose names do you think their names are most likely to be confused with? Other law-abiding, good black males who want to go and buy a gun to protect themselves and their families. There's no reason why those mistakes have to be there, but gun control advocates who are fighting for expanding these background checks to private transfers will tell you it's a poison pill to go and try to fix those things. I mean, all they'd have to do is something really simple, and that is... Private companies do background checks on employees all the time. If they had an error rate that was 100th the error rate that the government has in doing its background checks, they'd be sued out of existence. And the reason why they don't have mistakes is they don't use things like roughly phonetically similar names. They use the person's name. They use their exact birthday. They use all the other information that they're there to make sure they don't have mistakes. If you were to go to a Democrat and just say, well, maybe we should start letting companies go and just use roughly phonetically similar names to do background checks. They'd say, oh, no, you can't do that because it would discriminate against minorities. And that's right. But then the question is, why is it all right to discriminate against minorities when you're talking about whether or not you're going to let them be able to defend themselves and their families? And so, but any discussions about trying to fix something like that in in these universal background check bills is something that they'll fight you tooth and nail against trying to change. We're speaking to John Lott. He is the uh, president for the Crime uh, Re- uh, Crime Prevention Research Center, also author of More Guns, Less Crime. John, what about red flag laws? That's getting a lot of attention. The president mentioned it today. Right. Can those Can those be workable? Well, the way I would describe red flag law is you're trying to predict whether somebody's going to go and commit a crime. And uh, it's really not a focus on mental illness, despite because we already have laws that deal with people who are mentally ill. They're called Baker Act-type rules, where you can go and put somebody on a 72-hour hold where they can get professionally evaluated for whether or not there may be certain mental illness-type issues that are there. The way I would describe it, it's kind of like the old Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, without the psychics. And uh, I was on uh, something called the State Uniform Law Commission for a while where they were talking about putting together a model red flag law, and they'd have people from different states that have these laws already in effect come in. And uh, as I say, they really don't want to deal with mental illness here. And so you go and you ask them, well, what do you look for in order to try to predict whether somebody's going to commit a crime? And they say, well, what their criminal history is, or their gender, or their age, so that young males are more likely to go and commit crime than older males, and older males are more likely to commit suicide than, than middle-aged males are. And, uh, you know, you point out to them, they say, well, you know, we already have criminal history in terms of determining whether or not somebody's eligible to have a gun. If you're a felon, any type of felony, even a nonviolent felony, you're banned for life from owning a gun. Depending upon the state, 
uh, a lot of different misdemeanors can ban you for life or for different periods of time from being able to go and own a gun. But what they want to do with these types of things is to make it so that uh, simply an arrest without a conviction or even just a complaint without even arrest, they can take that into account then to determine whether or not you can own a gun. The big problem with these red flag laws, though, is that they can actually be counterproductive. They can actually create more problems than they would solve. So I'll give you one example. Um, I know a woman whose husband was murdered right in front of her by a stalker. She's had a number of stalkers, uh, uh, and she, she was incredibly depressed after her, her husband was murdered in front of her, uh, as would be understandable. Now, if you're depressed, you maybe want to go talk to friends and tell them and just be able to talk through your problems. The concern that she would feel in this situation, though, is that if she goes talks to somebody, then even somebody well-meaning might say, you know, I'm worried about her. She might go and do something wrong. Maybe, uh, you know, I should, we should take away her gun. Well, that would terrify her. I mean, she's just had a stalker kill her husband. Uh, she's had others uh, that have bothered her. And she would be afraid that if, she, that if she talked to people, she might lose her ability to go and defend herself. And that Yeah, it's, o- it's always more complicated in practice than they want to lead us to, to believe when they're suggesting these things. John Lott, everybody, he's the president for the Crime Prevention Research Center. Also check out his books on Amazon. Is it John, fair, thank you so much for joining John, us. to tie the president to this violence? Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're there. Well, Dan, whether right, or not we'll right it's back. fair, he's going to have to answer those questions. The bottom line is this president has had a rhetoric on immigration and on immigrants uh, that has been deeply divisive. And this is going to be something that he is going to have to answer for. What about the fact that immigration has become a very divisive issue in the country? What about the reality that immigration is an issue that we have been, by the media, lied to about for a very long time? I mean, this is, you know, folks, you know, you've got MS-13 illegals running around killing people, chopping people's heads off, cutting their hearts out. I mean, there's there's a lot in the immigration debate that's going to be contentious if you're really going to talk about it, because people like to lie about it all the time. Trump is the first Republican politician to come along in a long time who doesn't play by the rules of, oh, we're just a nation of immigrants and everything that immigrants do is great and immigrants are better than native-born Americans, which is the standard line you get from all Democrats and most Republicans. But that doesn't mean that he's responsible for the acts of some psychopath who thinks that, the, that, that killing innocent people is, is the answer to anything or something that anybody should ever do. But sure enough... That was ABC saying, yeah, Trump has to answer for this. Here's CBS. You know, this is why he calls them the fake news. Here, here's CBS saying that, you know, Trump is this guy, the, the shooter. By the way, where's all the analysis of the shooter in Dayton, Ohio, who's the Elizabeth Warren supporter? Why am I seeing so much less coverage of that? A lot of people killed there. A lot of people shot there, too. Guy was using an AR-15 crowded area. Police responded and killed them. Otherwise, you would have killed them. Sure, dozens, if not scores of people. Oh, because this is the you see this happening in real time. The media's preferred narrative is let's talk about the one we can tie to Trump. That's the important shit. Not not the shooting in Chicago over the weekend that uh, I think seven were killed and something like 30 or 40 were wounded. That's not the shooting they want to talk about. They want to talk about the El Paso shooting. Focus on that one. Not the Dayton mass shooting, which happened within 24 hours of it. Within I think with actually within minutes of it. 
if our memory serves, certainly within hours. Here's CBS talking about what happened in El Paso and Trump's connection to it. Play 16. But there are other things that we'll be looking for as the president makes remarks here. Number one, how will he respond to those claims that he is to blame for what happened in El Paso, given what we know about the shooter's motive, given the uh, almost identical language that the, the gunman used in talking about the crisis at the border with regard to illegal immigration? Where was this astute analysis of the Antifa terrorist in Washington state who referred to the concentration camps of the border, an incredibly provocative and and incorrect phrase, uh, not just used by Ocasio-Cortez, but that she doubled down on. Look, folks, we all know people use there is heated rhetoric in our politics. We have very serious divisions in politics right now. It is a dishonest thing for any Democrat or liberal to pretend that their side does not use incredibly divisive and destructive language on a regular basis and that they don't have 90 percent of the media working together in lockstep to try and promote those same ideas and push for the same uh, the same thing. So, you know, but they won't they won't stop. I mean, they, they keep pretending that this is Trump's fault and that only people on the right uh, say things that perhaps cross a line or that that go too far. For those who say, oh, well, 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 Trump is the president. All right. But guess what? There were mass shootings when Obama was president. Far too many of them. And there were mass shootings of police officers when Obama was president. Obama, who gave credit to the lie or was willing to give support to the lie that Black Lives Matter was a movement that was not really rooted in police hatred and animosity, but in the systemic murder of young black men by racist cops, which is just not what they it's just not true it's not what's happening in the country it's not just today it has happened several times this week it has happened here in las vegas where some lunatic killed 50 some odd people and wounded hundreds of people and i think all over the world people are looking at the united states and wondering what is going on what is the mental health situation in america where time after time after time we're seeing indescribable horrors Bernie Sanders, with the usual, after every incidence of uh, gun violence like this, he often compares us to the rest of the world, although that's always sloppy for a number of reasons we can get into. But this is this is a repeat in many ways of the arguments that we've had in the past after mass shootings similar uh, to this. What's a little bit different is that the New York Post, which is a right leaning publication, had an editorial on its front page today. The Post urges Trump to take on uh, to take action on assault weapons our friend charles cook who is the editor of national review online took this editorial to task in uh on on his own we want to bring charles on now to talk to us about it. charles great to have you back sir thank you for having me all right so first the argument that the before we get into the why it's wrong or where it misses the mark what's the essential argument that the post is making here in its front page editorial was somewhat fawning. It's an open letter to the president asking him to protect everyone. doesn't mention Congress prominently. And if the opinion editor of the post, Sorabamari, is to be believed, the idea here was to get it onto his desk. He's apparently a devotee of the post. I don't know what the argument was because it was so inchoate. I'm honestly not being facetious. The people who wrote this ostensibly the editors of the New York Post, don't know what they're talking about. 
And you get the usual tropes. Throughout, there is an assumption that we all know how to stop these mass shootings, but only some of us are prepared to take the steps. That is false. It's false on its face, and it's calling out. But the argument seems to be that it would be easy, even should one wish to ban assault weapons now, as is the clarion call, to do so. And that is also false. The editors of the Post seem to think that to put together a law that would remove from America's gun stores the guns they don't like, but leave untouched the ones that they do, would be easy in statutory terms and would be able to pass muster at the Supreme Court without having knock-on effects that they say they oppose. Although, given that they lionize the gun control policies in New York City, I have to be honest, I'm not completely convinced they're on the level here. And so an assault weapons ban is something we've we've tried before. And the, all the data that I've seen, and I've never... Uh, I've never read a refutation of this that was worthy of, of the term. Uh, the data suggests that the assault weapons ban was effectively meaningless, which is why it was allowed to expire. Now we're being told again to ban so-called uh, uh, assault weapons. Is is this just part of, part of the we must do something, even if doing something will have no real effect mentality, or is there more to it? I don't think there's more to it. And the editors of the Post do, in fact, concede that the last so-called assault weapons ban didn't do anything. They've clearly been around conservatives and gun owners enough to know that one of the objections that we have to bans on so-called assault weapons is that they tend to be cosmetic. Unfortunately, the Post editors didn't ask conservatives why that's a problem. And so they argue in their missive that the way to do the next assault weapons ban is not to focus on cosmetics, but is to focus on function. And the two specific functions they mention are rate of fire and muzzle velocity. Now, the problem with that is obvious. The AR-15, which is generally the gun that gun controllers want to ban when they talk about assault weapons, and indeed it's the gun depicted on the front of this Uh, New York Post issue, uh, is not different in structural terms or in mechanical terms than any other semi-automatic firearm uh, or indeed semi-automatic rifle. The rate of fire of an AR-15 is the same as the rate of fire uh, of a California legal handgun. It's one bullet expelled per pull of the trigger. Uh, This is not new technology. It's been around since uh, 1900 or so. Uh, the AR-15 does not use it in a different way than any other gun. So if you were to pass a law uh, based on rate of fire and to deem the rate of fire of the AR-15 as being unacceptable, then you would be, in effect, banning all semi-automatic firearms. Because, say, you would be banning half the firearms in the country and the vast majority of the firearms that are sold. As for muzzle velocity, well, we've all heard this, Buck. Every time a democratic politician or a Uh, gun control advocate stands up and says they want change. They say, I'm not coming after your grandfather's hunting rifle. Don't worry. But if you were to base a ban on muzzle velocity, you would, by definition, be going after hunting rifles because hunting rifles are the most powerful guns 
uh, on sale in the United States. It's not the AR-15, it's not handguns, hunting rifles, which are uh, used, of course, to take down animals as large as bison, would be uh, the ones affected. So uh, I- I'm sure <laughs> that the Post editors thought they were making a useful concession by saying, don't worry, we're not going after cosmetic features. But the reason that the uh, expired 1994 assault weapons ban was cosmetic in nature, the reason that Diane Feinstein's proposed replacement is cosmetic in nature, the reason that the various state-level regulations are cosmetic in nature is that the only thing that is different about an AR-15 is cosmetic. And so you end up banning things that have no bearing whatsoever on its lethality. Things like bump stocks, the bit that goes against your shoulder. Things like muzzle <laughs> um, flash uh, suppressors. You know, the, the, the argument here is, is, is a weak and a confused one that really is not uh, befitting of a national newspaper. Is there any policy, and we're speaking to Charles Cook, everyone, he's the editor of National Review Online. Is there any policy here that is is under consideration that is not just uh you know okay but you think would really be worthwhile because i tend to think the answer is no i mean i i've become kind of i've become somewhat cynical on all this because there already are a lot of laws about guns laws about mental health laws you know you could start to adjust red flag laws but that's going to turn into a whole fight on its own uh, the moment that somebody says something that, you know, someone else doesn't like on Twitter, and now all of a sudden they're, they're trying to get them brought into court on a red flag. I mean, there's just a lot of problems as I see it. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard anything in the last 24 hours, Charles, where I say, that's a great idea. Let's do that. I'll say a couple of things on that. But the first thing is, as you know, there are a lot of gun control laws on the books, and I, and I don't oppose all of them. There are gun control laws that even the most hardcore Second Amendment advocate supports. For example, I'm entirely happy limiting gun ownership or gun purchases to adults. I'm happy to um, restrict those who are mentally ill. I'm happy to restrict those who have a history of violent crime. Um, In fact, I think some of our laws are badly enforced. This is something that Kevin Williamson has written about, that we have some laws on the books that pretty much everyone agrees are a good idea, but they, they are ignored. Um, so we, we already have quite a lot of laws on the books, um, and the idea that it is a total free-for-all out there, which I know, of course, you know this, but for the record, it's just not true. Uh, it, the firearms are the most heavily regulated consumer uh, good. Um, now, in terms of red flag laws or, or other ideas, there's a writer, formerly at 538, uh, called Leah Labresco, and she wrote a Washington Post essay a couple of years ago in which she said that uh, as a gun control advocate or former gun control advocate, she had done a review of all of the laws on the books and concluded that none of them would have made any difference to mass shooting. Um, this is because, unlike with crime, which you, you can affect around the edges with different policies, policing, for example, uh, and also some gun control measures, um, mass shooters are uh, committed. Um, they, uh, their actions are premeditated. They don't do what they've, they've done on a whim. Um, and they, they're going to get hold of guns. Uh, there's half a billion guns in the United States. And uh, her view was that the by far and away the best way of trying to deal with this was on an individual basis. Uh, It was interventions that stopped 
uh, mass shootings, and most other crime um, committed with a firearm. Um, insofar as red flag laws can be tied to that effort, uh, I think they are at least the right way of thinking about the problem. And I'm not going to dismiss them out of hand. My issue is the same as I think Dave Copel's, which is that if you actually look at the way they've been deployed, they are generally a nightmare for due process, uh, and they don't include enough protections. And of course, one of the reasons for that is that the states that have picked up the idea and run with it are usually hostile toward gun ownership, and therefore don't think carefully about how best to protect individuals and their rights, because they don't actually believe that those individuals have a meaningful right in the first instance. Well, this is a recurring so theme. Going- I mean, if you if you look at even the way that they handle premise permits and things like that in a place like New York City, they, they do it intentionally. They make it expensive, difficult, long and hard on purpose. No, that's exactly right. So you know, if, 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 if a Second Amendment advocate were to write a red flag law, I would be interested in seeing it because that has to be part of any individualized intervention, which is the only way you can really stop this or prevent this. Um, outside of that, it, th- there, there are other variables here that I think we don't fully understand. Uh, there were a lot of guns in America 50 years ago. We didn't have this problem on anything like this scale. And I think what we are seeing is in large part now um, a copycat problem that is spiraling. Malcolm Gladwell has suggested we're seeing something equivalent to a slow-motion riot where each mass shooter gives permission to the next one. You know, people don't tend to wake up ex nihilo and say, you know what, I'll just go kill a bunch of people with a gun because I'm angry. But now that's something that is done in our culture. Uh, It's horrendous that that is true. But that is the way that many people take out their anger and their upset. And until we find a way of breaking that cycle, I don't think that arguing with each other about muscle velocity in a country with half a billion guns is going to make much difference. Charles Cook, everybody, editor of National Review Online. Check out nationalreview.com to see his latest. He's all over this gun issue and very sound in his thinking on it. Charles, always good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for your time today. Great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. All right, team, we got more coming up. Stay with me. Do you think President Trump is a white nationalist? Yes, I I do. And again, uh, from some of the record that I just recited to you, the the things that he has said, both as a, a candidate uh, and then as the president of the United States, this cannot be uh, open for, for debate. Let's be very clear about what is causing this and who the president is. He is an open, avowed racist and is encouraging more racism in this country. And this is uh, incredibly dangerous for the United States of America right now. All of us have a responsibility to stand up and be counted on this issue. Well, Beto is an open and avowed moron and liar. So there's that. And to say that the president is an open and avowed racist is just is just flatly untrue. I mean, it's it's unfair to call him a racist. But this is not about fairness anymore. Uh, this is not about what really needs to be done going forward for Democrats. This has turned immediately as they're in the midst of a presidential primary. This has turned into how can this be used for maximum advantage right away? 
Uh, it's despicable to watch this going on. I mean, the, the bodies are not yet in the ground and people have not yet had the opportunity to mourn. They've not yet had funeral services. There's just a, 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 such a rush to use this emotionally charged moment for maximum political benefit. And it is it is utterly disgraceful and disgusting. But that's where we are. And of course, the media plays along with all of this. And we've been talking about how any anyone who wants to go on TV and call Trump a white nationalist or a white supremacist, they can find a cable news platform with full distribution across America to let them do that. And anybody who has that interest will be able to find a way to do it. And that in itself, I find very troubling. Uh, and and any and the media, of course, allies with the left on using this moment for maximum political damage against conservatives, even though, as, as we've discussed, you have a right-wing shooter and a left-wing shooter. Which attack is getting more attention? Which one is the media focused on? The right-wing shooter, or you know, the one who espoused right-wing beliefs. You know, we talked about the uh, invasion of, uh, of Mexicans in the United States. Not the socialist Elizabeth Warren supporter. That one gets far less attention. Meanwhile, uh, Jake Tapper who is the, the biggest fraud in the TV news business. I mean, the biggest fraud in that he pretends not to be what he is constantly, which is a Democrat hack and partisan, and is very prickly about you know, anyone ever calling him out on this. Uh, he, he decided to act like a paid DNC operative and do a whole shout-out against all the Republicans who did not go on his show. Play 10. This morning, lawmakers and presidential candidates already are beginning to call for change. We're going to talk with at least four presidential candidates today about what they would do to stop this epidemic of mass shootings and shootings. We should note that we invited the Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and both Republican U.S. senators representing Texas to join us this morning. They all declined. The Republican governor of Ohio also declined. We also asked the White House to provide someone to discuss these shootings. That request, too, was declined. Yeah, I wonder why, Jake. Maybe because after the town hall that Jake Tapper hosted in the aftermath of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, it was clear that there was no real interest in having a discussion or an exchange of ideas. It was a lefty Democrat ambush of my old friend and colleague Dana Lash, who went right in, speaking, talking about the lion's den, went right in there. People were saying the most horrible things to her. And just remember this, folks. Jake Tapper allowed Dana Lash to be treated like the devil the devil himself and the sheriff, the weaselly, cowardly little sheriff down at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School uh, County, he was treated like a hero at that gun forum CNN had. So, I mean, CNN is a joke. Robert Comey have politicized the tops of the intelligence communities in a way. They're Republicans. Never, they're, first of all, some of the people that hate Republicans. They're Republicans. Some of the people that hate Trump the most are actually Republicans or former center-right people. Yeah, so that's true. They're human. And then on top of that's ridiculous. You have the former, those guys were never, those guys were never political. It's Trump made them political because he behaved this the way. Former CIA because he sits he, going on because TV. Kim Jong Un fires off missiles, and Trump says, "Don't worry, we're friends." You had the former. You mean C if Obama did that, you'd be cool with that? You had the former CIA. Instead of friendship, okay. Great our great oh. oh. I do not know him, by the way. I do not. <laughs> this I, this is not I, I see you. I see you brought a guest. Okay. I did all not right, bring it. All right, sir. I did not bring it. Sir, him. I know. Okay. 
you know, uh, this is not the first time I've had to go in the audience, but we got to get faster moving security people. I'm telling you, you, you guys really, I know, I know, we're, I know you're going to make America great again, but yeah. Okay. You've made your point. I don't know what it was, but you've made your point. I think your point was you like Trump. And there are a lot of people who like Trump's so make sure he doesn't have a gun. Okay. Now. All right. So that was from uh, the er- early on in my appearance Friday on the Bill Maher show. You can see Bill and I were in the midst of talking about the politicization of the top of the intelligence community. I got to tell you, I was frustrated because I was about to lay into what, and some of you probably could tell, I was about to lay into Brennan going on MSNBC and calling the president a traitor and how this going forward, even beyond the Trump administration, will mean that presidents can't just assume that whoever they have is a professional that can be uh, can be trusted. Uh, it might be a person that they, you know, need to think of in, in more political terms. But that guy who was a obviously a pro Trump protester intervened right when I was about to have the full response, the full fusillade unleashed. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a pretty entertaining moment. Uh, it, it is not, as some have suggested, my Uncle Buck, who we thought was lost at sea back in 1972 when he was in the South Pacific uh, with the Merchant Marines. Um, it is not my Uncle Buck. I, I did not know who that guy was, but it was an interesting uh, interesting day on Friday. If you ha- oh, that was By the way, that was the top of the Drudge Report, that on... Um, on a Saturday until obviously the terrible tragedies of the last few days happened. Uh, that, that, that one interruption got a lot of it, a lot of attention. So yes, the Bill Maher thing was certainly an interesting exchange. I hope they have me back because uh, I have, I've just begun to make my points there. Something else that I wanted to bring to your attention. Cause I can't, I don't want to speak about guns and gun control the entire show today. Of course, is that uh, this was from my friend, Robbie Suave over at reason At the Democratic Socialists of America convention, clapping, chatter, and gendered language are all considered triggering. Uh, I mean, this this is amazing. Uh, This does show you at some level that people who have a a propensity for socialism and some of these left-wing ideologies, they're just very, you know, they're very sensitive in, in bad ways. Um, although I will say this, and I was at a, a performance recently, a a dance performance, and I got to tell you, someone did a whistle uh, behind me, and I was, it was one of those whistles where someone puts both their, their, you know, fingers in their mouth, and they just make this super loud noise. I do not know why people think that's ever an okay thing to do. It is incredibly, no one on stage is like, oh, that person made the loud whistle noise in row 235. Now I feel better about my performance. That does not happen. No one needs to hear the super loud fingers in the mouth whistle thing. And the person that's two feet in front of you when you do it, it hurts their ears. So don't be that guy. Don't know why people have to do that. I really don't. It, it just, I just wish everyone would just get the message. Stop doing that. Uh, but anyway, back to the Democratic. Maybe I should be a Democratic socialist. Apparently, I get triggered easily, too. Um, although there is a there's a medical condition, I think, that they've identified where some people find whistling to be uh, excruciatingly annoying. I'm one of those. I hate whistling. I, I do find it excruciating. But but I can handle the normal, you know, maybe it's because I can't whistle that I hate it so much. Otherwise, I would have done some whistling. But the fingers in the mouth whistle is the worst. All right, back to this Democratic Socialists and their meeting. 
we do have some audio from this and i figured you should you should hear how upset people were about the gendered language play it if we want to defeat capitalism we are going to need a party that will organize working people to fight for the demands that we want and to win socialism thank you so much Uh, quick point of privilege quick point Um, of personal privilege um guys uh first of all james jackson sacramento he him i just want to say can we please keep the chatter to a minimum i'm one of the people who's very very prone to sensory overload there's a lot of whispering and chatter going on it's making it very difficult for me to focus please can we just i know it's we're all fresh and ready to go but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum it's affecting my ability to focus thank you thank you comrade okay is there a speaker against name chapter pronoun point of personal privilege yes please do not use gendered language to to address everyone Point of personal privilege. Hi, my name is Buck Saxton, New York City. He, him. Uh, but we'll answer to the or or it. <laughs> I'm going to start. Whatever, whatever people call it now, I should just say, hey, welcome to the Buck Saxton show. My pronouns are he, him. And uh, you, could, you could do the same. That was crazy. I also love it. They, they do refer to people. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. They, they do refer to each other in this meeting as, as comrade. They, they think that that's something that they should be doing. They refer to each other as comrade. You, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, if only they could understand that socialism is not just bad because of what it has become in practice. Socialism is not just an experiment in the past in something that has gone wrong but could go well in the future. Socialism, socialism is wrong in thought as well as wrong in deed. It does not work in theory or in practice. Uh, and it always falls or succumbs to the same problems. I mean, it has a a lack of specific knowledge that allows for localized or fine-tuned improvisation. This is what you can get from a market. You cannot get it from socialism. And also central planning is the central feature. The most important thing is really state control, more important than anything else. And that state control can even be used to justify the eradication of the goods and the rights and the the upside that socialism is supposed to promote if if there's a basically if if the socialist apparatus has a choice between feeding people or staying the socialist apparatus it will always do the latter and not the former Uh, feeding people is a byproduct of the socialist system it is not the primary reason for these for socialist systems Uh, the system is The system exists to exist. It exists because it's a power structure that people always sit atop and pretend that there's a humanitarian and charitable impulse that guides all their decision making and their thinking. That is not the case. Um, But, yeah, I I wish that I could have a sit down with all these Democratic Socialists of America, these young people, and explain to them why in in purely philosophical terms. I mean, the, the historical examples I could go through. You know, we could talk about Vietnam, we could talk about Cuba, Venezuela, China, Soviet Union. Uh, the historical examples of socialism in practice, I would hope they are familiar enough with that they wouldn't need me to go through in, in any particular detail for them. Although I'm sure they have a very rosy view of, say, Cuba. You know, the story in Cuba is, oh, America's been so mean to Cuba, that's why its system isn't... That, that's why an island that should be relatively wealthy and was relatively wealthy per capita for the region, for the Caribbean region, before 
Castro's revolution is, is, you know, everyone's driving around in cars from the 1950s uh, and has access to free but crappy health care. Great. That's the entire episode. The downside is it's a it's a prison state where people are tortured and political speech is outlawed and the system does not allow for individuals to rise and pursue their talents. It's, It's a nightmare. And there are a lot of people in this country who still think that you know, there's a way to salvage the ideology that underlies all that. And they're just wrong. And they were meeting in an, in a convention center in Florida, whatever it was, just this past weekend. So that's real. Another thing I just, just wanted to. This just caught my eye. Uh, I've been telling you that this is this is where this goes next. I do think that here is where they will fail. I do think that this is where you will see. uh the left unable to force feed its agenda in, into the consciousness of the American people. But Victoria's Secret, best known for it being an underwear, women's underwear lingerie chain, right? I, I don't need to explain to you what Victoria's Secret I don't know why. <laughs> it's like I'm talking to foreigners all of a sudden. Like, Do you know what Victoria's Secret is? You guys all know what Victoria's Secret is. So, uh, you know, Victoria's Secret just hired, this just happened over the weekend, I think. Um, it's first transgender Victoria's Secret model or Victoria's Secret Angel, which I think is the top of the Victoria's Secret model food chain. Um, the individual is named is named Valentina Sampaio. So a Brazilian transgender female. Uh, this is a person who is a man is now a woman uh, has been hired to be a Victoria's Secret Angel. Um, I, I think this is weird. I think this is weird. I mean, if there are people that are into this, that's fine. But you're not going to be allowed to have your have your opinion on this. You're going to be we're going to be told. I've been telling you this for a long time, that if you are a straight man and you are not attracted to transgender females, so people who have male genitalia and male XY chromosome all over the, you know, in every cell in their body, uh, if you find that not attractive as a heterosexual male, that's on you. You're the problem. It's not that, you know, it's not that reality here should prevail and that your attraction to your sexual attraction to females is understandable, biologically based and something that you're allowed to maintain. Right. That's we're now heading into this phase where, you know, you're going to be told if you're a guy, you should be willing to go out with a transgender if you're a guy who's attracted to women you should go out with transgender women because they are women this is a lie they can repeat it over and over again they can say whatever they want but reality does not bend to the emotional whims of the mob and that's where we are now you're gonna you're gonna see and you know i, I also think that there's something uh there's something dishonest there's something a bit uh a bit unfair i dare i even say a little creepy about the presentation of someone who would be ostensibly female only to find out that it's actually a male, um, you know, this wouldn't be, uh, this isn't okay. I mean, would it be, let me, let me take it, let me take it in this direction. If you had a, you know, a a 75 year old woman that they were, that they did all kinds of plastic surgery or not plastic surgery, but you know, all kinds of makeup and bodysuit and all the things they do and trying to make it look like a, like a 30 year old woman and presented herself that way to somebody and said, Hey, you know, here I am. I'm 30 when you're actually 75. 
is, is the person supposed and, and you know and they they show photos of themselves let's say it's like on a you know on a dating app situation they show photos of themselves to somebody they're 75 they present themselves as 30 through you know changing the imagery doing photoshop whatever you show up you got a 75 year old there nothing wrong with 75 year olds but i don't think you should say you're 45 years younger you know for dating purposes would everyone be okay with that i mean at, at some point this is a this is just a function of dishonesty right this just becomes dishonest but they're gonna they're gonna make you they're gonna make you uh or try to make you feel weird about this they're going to say that it's bigoted if you're not attracted to transgender females. I'm not attracted to transgender females. Uh, I do not find this as a heterosexual male. I do not find this new game that the elite media is playing to be acceptable. Look, if people it's fine if people want to they can do whatever they want. I shouldn't be told what I'm allowed to be attracted to or like. And that's where this is all heading now. They're either going to try to be dishonest about it, which I think is a, is a huge problem. So now you'll just see an ad for somebody and you'll say, well, and there's a lot of ways they can adjust and, you know, Photoshop and do these things. So you, it's harder to tell if somebody's really female or not. Uh, and, you know, that, that's what or they're going to say, if you can tell that that you're uh, you're bigoted. That's where this is all heading. I told you now you got a Victoria's Secret transgender model angel, folks. This is where the country's heading. A lot of people are going to say seventy five hundred bucks more for an iPhone uh, is not de minimis. Would you guys at least just admit that these latest tariffs are going to inject a new level of volatility? Well, let's see how that plays out, because on a lot of these production supply uh, chains and so forth, there are going to be changes. And a lot of these companies have already said they're fixing to leave China and come either come back to the United States or go someplace else. $7,500 more for an iPhone is what they're, uh, the CNN reporter is asking uh, Larry Kudlow there. I, I don't think, look, I don't think that's going to happen. But today was um, today was not a good day for the stock market, that's for sure. I think it, it was something like 900 points drop in the Dow. It's definitely, it has definitely been a, a bad day uh, in that, you know, for, for that. Um, the president, people are starting to worry about whether or not we're going to head into a recession. I've said it before. I'll keep saying it. The way that Trump really does lose is if we hit a recession, um, going into the election year, then, then he becomes really vulnerable as a candidate. By the way, our friend, Derek scissors, who will hopefully be joining us later this week. He's a trade expert. He said that, look, this is people need to not freak out so much about what happened today. Play, play 19. It's a very small currency change in valuation, right? It's less than a point a percent and a half. It's long overdue. China's faced balance of payments pressure, a slowing economy. So objectively, it, it, it's tiny, and the markets are wildly overreacting. I think part of the market reaction goes to your second point, that they're losing confidence in the Chinese ability to manage the situation. And the last time China tried to manage a, a depreciation of the currency in August 2015 and January 2016, it triggered their version of a recession with a huge amount of capital outflow. Didn't they put restrictions on wealthy people to prevent them from moving currency out of the country? I recall that happening. Yeah, very sharp restrictions, as in up to the point of you, know, you disappear and no one ever sees you again mm -hmm. kinds of restrictions. So, yes, those are in place, and that may help. But if you make people uh, really nervous about what the value of their RMB assets are going to be, whether it be stocks or property, they'll find a way to get out of the RMB. So that's the danger here. If this is a 1% move and they want to play around at 7, it doesn't mean anything, and U.S. markets will recover. If they lose control of it, that's when people are afraid that even those capital controls won't work. 
So it could get really bad, our buddy Derek Scissors are saying. I mean, things, there's the Chinese ability to maintain some stability in their markets uh, and with their currency, that, that's a real, a real possibility. But from my perspective, I just see this as Trump has probably wagered the second four years of his presidency on this one issue of a trade war with China. I, I think this is the single biggest gamble, the single biggest bet he has taken because if this thing does start to become what people remember, they were worrying for the last 18 months. They were they were warning us for 18 months that this was going to turn into this terrible trade war, all the destruction of wealth and that there's going to be uh, you know, who, who knows what the full economic ramifications would end up being. But it was going to be very bad. They've been saying that it hasn't happened. And now we look at this and say to ourselves, OK, well, given that China's not backing down and not getting an agreement with us. What what really what really could end up happening here? As I said, my my biggest concern is that even if Trump is right over the long run, he might not be right over the short run insofar as the disruption to our economy from this trade war with China could end up handing this thing to a Democrat in 2020. That's my concern. Well, team, as you know, I was out on Friday for the Bill Maher show. I, I did it. It was I think it's worth you all going and if you have HBO on demand, go back and give it a watch. It was a relatively look, I won't judge it for you. You can watch for yourself. I think I made the the best of the time that I had and I, I did enjoy myself. It's a fun show to do. It's very hard to do, though. I, I think that some some of the feedback I got from a few of you was why why not just go in there and go go scorched earth? You know, when you're in someone else's show and you're surrounded by liberals and you have a giant audience, live audience of liberals there, too, you've got to think of it like you're a guest at a dinner party in someone else's home and someone else is doing the cooking. You can share your thoughts and you can try to persuade people, but you can't bully them or strong arm them or try to shout them down because the moment you open that door, then that's what they'll do to you. So it's not as easy as just go in there and, and try to drop bombs and you, you there's no there's no opportunity. I mean, you only have, at best, really 45 to 60 seconds at a time with each response that you get. And there's other people on the panel to try and make the case. So I hope you all felt like it was a, a strong enough showing uh, under the circumstances. But just understand that that is considered by many of my conservative friends who have done uh, TV for years and years and years. That's considered the hardest show to do as a conservative and have a a strong experience where you feel like you were able to make your points and that your your senses uh, sen uh, sentiments were accurately shared and you made your argument that's the hardest place to do it cnn and msnbc yeah and in a one segment situation you do whatever you want to do right and then you're just you're just going to throw haymakers but if you're going to be on a show for an hour like that and you sit on a panel for roughly 25 minutes and then another seven to ten minutes in overtime afterwards, uh, you, you have to play by the house rules a bit in terms of decorum and, and time and timing. So I enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed that, that watched. And uh, I had fun out in L.A., man. L.A. is great. L.A. is a great town. You know, it's a great place to visit. A lot of time in the car. And I went to see, uh, I saw my friend uh, Tommy Laren and, and her fiancé and some other friends of mine out in Manhattan Beach, which is a beautiful part of L.A., or yeah, I think it's L.A., right? Beautiful part of California. Uh, I could definitely go for having a house a block or two from the beach there. But you know, everyone spends a lot of time in the car. I mean, if you want to go from Manhattan Beach to West Hollywood, you're not talking about a 40, 45-minute drive. That's a long way. So, yeah, 
team. That was uh, the Bill Maher experience on Friday. Hopefully, we'll get another chance. It'll be uh, be an interesting place to make the case for conservatives. I, I do think that I want some grudging respect from that audience. I'll tell you that. Roll call coming up. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Roll call time. I missed you all on Friday. I trust the Godfather did a fantastic job filling in as he tends to do. Uh, the Godfather, the one and only. And I appreciate very much all of you who were able to uh, tune in and watch me do my thing on the Bill Maher Show. It was uh, quite an experience. Hopefully they will have me back in action soon. We will see. Uh, it was certainly spicy, and I was I was pleased with the way, all things considered, the way that it went. I think I came at them about as forcefully as I could while still maintaining the uh, basic decorum of the show. So there you go. Michael writes, Tulsi Gabbard is a surfer and she sings and she has a nice warm smile. Why aren't the Dems getting behind her? She's the only Democratic candidate I can stand. Well, Michael, she's not really one of them. She's not really a part of the establishment in a way that other Democrats would want her to be. She also is very hard on establishment elites like Hillary Clinton and the general Democrat propensity for intervention. Remember, while the left likes to say that conservatives are warmongers um, and, and we start wars for oil or whatever, they are very quick to use U.S. military force in what is often an ill-fated and ill-advised um, humanitarian mission. So they, they are interventionist for different reasons on the left then we tend to be interventionists on the right. Aaron writes, um, well, I can't really read. It's a link. Uh, Mike writes, Buck, I saw Primal Rage. Not a fan at all. Harry and the Hendersons is a better choice to me. Your show tops my entertainment list, though. Well, Mike, thank you. I'm so glad my show is high on your list. That means a lot. And I'm going to tell you, I, uh, I am... Not somebody that's gonna that, that gave high ranks or high marks to Primal Rage. I just wanted to watch a mindless monster movie one night, and so I watched it. It is very violent and uh, disturbing. So I, I did not give that the full endorsement, although we do have our friend who is listening to the show, I'm sure, right now out in California, who is one of the actors in Primal Rage, Mr. Marshall. Uh, shields high to you. But uh, the, the, generally speaking, it's definitely not for kids. Not for I mean, it's an eighteen and over movie. All right, do not let any kids watch it. And you know, look, some people like monster stuff. Wait, I always forget, producer Mark. Are you are you somebody who's really in? See, I think it's producer Brandon who was really into slasher flicks and all that. You're not so into that, right? Yeah, I really don't like horror movies. Yeah, you really don't like. See, this is why I get because producer Brandon was very into horror movies, and he could tell you about. Like weird Japanese zombie movies and stuff like that, and I'm like, whoa, he, he was a whole other, whole other level. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like watching anything that's deeply unsettling and depressing because I find, I find life challenging enough without having to add all that other stuff into it, make things harder than it would otherwise have to be. All right, Paul writes. Um, your time and talents were wasted on Friday, Buck. Mar should have you as a featured guest, not a panelist. 
just one man's opinion. Well, Paul, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you take these shots to have discussions in the lion's den when you can, and I hope that they will uh, give me another chance to do my thing because I think it's important for it's important for leftists to be exposed to people on our side who not only know the issues but can but can tangle can make the case in in a a hostile environment um but i i appreciate you watching um quite honestly i'm sure they would say that i i'm my notoriety is not yet such that i could be a a featured guest or there's not a news peg to having me as a featured guest on the show quite yet so i'll have to uh get i don't know in the in the news cycle in some way I'll have to do something kind of crazy you know, say I'm running for president for independent or something. I would never do that. But you know what I mean? Do some pull some stunt so that I'm at the top of the news cycle. And then maybe that'll happen. Uh, Jeremy, it's Buck. I think there are a few points where you're going to make Marianne Williamson cry on Bill Maher. Good job on the show. Always love having the Godfather on the radio. Shields high. Well, you know, I, I try to be uh, fair and, and reasonably friendly to Marianne. She actually gave me a big hug after the show and I could feel her healing energy washing all over me and all of a sudden my limp was gone and perhaps I was even cured of my celiac disease you know she laid her healing hands with the healing crystals on me um, but no I, I think that we managed to have on a very contentious news day we managed to have a pretty civil civil debate civil discussion all things considered Kyle writes I wanted to reach out since it really isn't something that has talked about however during the Democrat Socialist of America conference in Atlanta this past week the DSA created a, quote, anti-fascist working group. This sounds as though the DSA is organizing Antifa under their umbrella and legitimizing them. It is common knowledge out here in Oregon that DSA has a ton of Antifa membership, but this seems as though they're bringing them into the fold and clearly stating support for these people as a party. Sounds like the DSA is going to have brown shirts to enforce their political ideologies. Uh, well, Kyle, I... I don't know all that much about what's going on with the DSA these days. I'll have to dig into it a little bit. Um, although they did, they are kind of silly. Uh, Howard, hey, Buck, could you address the reality of or, or exaggeration of white supremacy and associated violence? The mainstream press sure is pushing this issue. Uh, well, Howard, this is a, a broader topic than I'll be able to do justice to in a, in a quick roll call shout out. But. Uh, white supremacy, there's a lot of factors right now. One is that what constitutes white supremacy is being, the definition is constantly being widened. So if you're making more and more things white supremacist by deciding that they now, you know, a, a school system that has a disproportionately negative impact on minorities is white supremacy or, you know, this is what is said now, whereas it used to be that white supremacists were really a violent neo-Nazi faction. Now it's being used to describe a lot more stuff. So if you're really just expanding the definition, then that doesn't, that doesn't correlate to a rise in white supremacist activity here at, at home in America. Um, as for uh, you know, the associated violence with it, I'd have to look. I mean, I do think that just based off of what we know, there have been some, in the last few years, there have been more large-scale, what you, what you would attribute to white supremacist shootings than in other other periods uh, but overall violence levels from white supremacists are n not at you know look we we lost 3,000 Americans in one day at a jihadist violence on 9-11 we're nowhere near that 
over the last 10 years from white supremacist violence. So, you know, you, you look at it in terms of what the body count is year in and year out, and white supremacy is still a, look, it's a law enforcement problem. It is not a international global terrorist problem. These are different in scope and scale. Richard writes, uh, Buck, there have been a number of stories out saying July was the hottest ever. First off, the medieval warming period and the Roman warming period were both warmer than we were today. Second, Dr. Roy E. Spencer's website has a great piece on why the science also says this is wrong. Also, Weatherbell Saturday update pokes some holes in the argument. You should check it out. I'm not saying mankind has not contributed warming. Sure it is. I just think like the penny in my pocket adding to my weight. It's the reason. But is it the reason I'm overweight? No. Shields high. Well, Richard, this is what I always say that, you know, it's like when they talk about Russian interference in the election. Okay, it happened. But conceding it happened doesn't really mean anything because, you know, I I could interfere in the Chinese election. Well, not that they really have them, but I I could interfere in in any country's politics or its election by going on some site that I know. You know, and, and posting on it, right? I mean, then, and if people read that, and if I lie about their premier, if I lie about their political parties, I have, as a matter of definition, I have interfered in another country's election. Does anyone think that that's going to change the course of a major political contest? And this is a a nefarious way of, of taking the, the butterfly effect and attributing it to politics. So anything that is done that could affect an election all of a sudden becomes election interference, becomes an election that is no longer legitimate. That's very, very dangerous stuff. Um, but I hear you. Uh, ben writes, hey, Buck, who are you texting on the closing credits of the show on Real Mar, uh, real time rather Bill Maher? Great work standing up for America, by the way. Hey, Ben, um, I can't tell you who I was texting. I was texting some folks. There are some people who are sending me texts. But thank you so much for writing in. I'm always text. I always got to text my mom. Got to check in and say, hey, mom, the momager, you know, make sure she approves of my defense of America and freedom. Scott writes, get Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on your show. He wrote in Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill, a call to action against TV, movie and video game violence, that the techniques used by armies to train soldiers to kill are mirrored in certain types of video games. You might already know him, Bet the Left will not control the weapon of choice for our kids. Violent games are the root of much of the violence. Try to get on tonight. Your screener had a bad time with the feedback in the background. Uh, Scott, I, I, don't, I don't buy the video game explanation, my friend. I'm sorry. I just, I don't. I do not think that that is, uh, I don't think that that's a legitimate, well, I shouldn't say it's not legitimate. I, I think that that's a minor factor in all of this. I can't see that as being, something that we really need to focus our attention in on. I really, I just, I just can't. I'm sorry. I, the access to video games is, is a global market, and you have kids all over, for example, Korea and Japan, and you know, you name a foreign country, but Korea and Japan have very low rates of gun violence, and they've got kids playing Call of Duty and all these things too, and competitions and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Um, love your show. This is from DTD. Uh, listen to your podcast every evening when I take my exercise walk. Heard you're going to be on Bill Bill Maher, so I watched it. Uh, never watched that guy before, and now I know why. Talk about entering the belly of the beast. I don't know how you kept your cool. I think you're the only conservative talk personality who could have pulled that off. Um, you may have actually intrigued some people watching, gained their respect, however possible that may be for a liberal of a conservative, uh, enough that perhaps they'll check you out. 
once they start listening to you, they'll be converted after one segment. I'm sure of it. What you did took enormous courage, and normally I would strongly advise against anyone going on these shows, uh, even a live one, as it is structured to highlight their positions and just use ours for cheap fodder. Kudos to you and your performance, Shields High. Well, thank you so much, uh, DTD. Um, really, really appreciate it, and uh, the support The support means a lot. So thank you for, for sending that in. Wes, awesome job staying tenacious with other people on the Bill Maher Show. You made uh, sense versus other people. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Wes. Same to you, man. I really do appreciate it. Um, so you know, it's very nice. Uh, John writes, Buck, I heard you first a couple years ago when you sat in for Rush, and I've been hooked on your show ever since. I watched you on the Bill Maher show. Your swoop looked great and did a wonderful job defending the president in an environment that was so incredibly biased and stacked against you. That being said, it was very hard to watch and hear all the cheap shots and mind-numbing repetitive talking points from the liberals. It was easy for the crystal lady and former Michigan governor to say ridiculous things to make you look bad, followed by Bill Maher not giving you any time to respond. I could tell you're fuming when they started with the children in cages comment. You kept your cool better than I would have. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Yeah, John, I mean, you know, at some point you, you, you just also have to real like I had to realize that I'm not in an intellectual contest with with Granholm or, or Marianne Williamson. Uh, I, I know more than both of them about every major policy issue that exists. And there's no question about that. I mean, just this is not an intellectual fair fight. Uh, so I just try to engage as best I could under the circumstances and, and make our case, because keep in mind, uh, you know, if you go at somebody whose show it is like that and, and you you just turn it into hostile, they can always liberals can always make the situation even more hostile and then just take the whole thing off the rails. And on a comedy show, especially with one that allows profanity, all of a sudden it just turns into, you know, blank this and blank that and, oh, bl- you know, shut the blank up and and it just get turns into a mess. So you have to engage from my, from my conservative perspective. I have to engage in good faith and respectfully, even in the face of disrespect or else the whole thing goes completely nuts. All right, team, more coming up tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you then. Shields high.